welcome to Cornerstone on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, here in Sunday School, we'll be continuing our study in Galatians. This morning, we'll be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Um, I'll go ahead and read that and pray, and then we'll be going through the text. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are, ser- you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and open your word. I pray that my words might be clear, and I pray that as we, uh, as we see your word, uh, that we would uh, hear it and apply it to our lives and be transformed by it. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Galatians, Paul is addressing the issue of whether believers should be required to be circumcised, or really he's refuting that idea. In order to address this, Paul has gone through a series of arguments. Uh, He's used some analogies, the analogy of a child under a guardian. Uh, He's talked about Abraham and argued from uh, from the example of Abraham. Towards the end of chapter 4, Paul uses uh, the example or the analogy of Hagar and Sarah and the sons that they both bore. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul lays out where believers are. He says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. So that's the reality of where um, those who are in Christ are. Then in today's passage, Paul lays out the consequences of accepting the false teaching of circumcision. Particularly in verses 2 through 6, Paul explains what happens if the Galatians reject the freedom that Christ has offered and submit to the slavery of the law. So we'll see 
a bit of contrast between chapter 5, verse 1, where the believers are in Christ, to where they are if they accept this teaching of circumcision. And so this morning's text, I'll be handling it basically in two sections. The first section is uh, 5, 2 through 6, verses 2 through 6, and then the second section is verse 7 through 12. So verses 2 through 6, Paul is explaining the particular consequences of accepting circumcision as uh, needed for salvation. And in the second section, Paul is looking at the more general effects of false teaching and false teachers. And so as we go through, I'll be highlighting uh, four points in each section. It's just how it worked out that I found four in each. So let's begin with the first section of verses 2 through 7. So first of all, turning our attention to verse 2, Paul writes, Look, I, Paul, say that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So first of all, we see that circumcision is not something which can be added on to Christ. To accept Christ as a necessary add-on is to nullify Christ's work. For the Galatians to accept circumcision is to rely on their own works for justification. Thus, they would be rejecting the grace of Christ and instead be relying on their own works. And with the addition of this work to the marvelous message of the gospel, uh, really it ends up nullifying the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Christ has completed the work. Christ uh, has done the work on the cross. He has accomplished redemption for his people. It, it is finished. But the circumcision party comes along and says, well, actually, you need this other thing. They say, to be justified, you need to be circumcised like Old Covenant Israel was. This would have been the same standard that would have been applied to converts to Judaism in the time before Christ came. And so it may have seemed very familiar to them, but Paul is very clear. If you do this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If they choose to live under the law, then the wonderful grace of Christ will be of no benefit to them. If you're going to try to achieve salvation for yourself, then you may as well not pretend not to uh, be in Christ, adding our good works, which are more like filthy rags, uh, Isaiah 64, adding those filthy rags to Christ's perfect righteousness, that doesn't improve Christ's righteousness. It, you know, it just pollutes it. So, when you are saved by Christ, Christ is transforming you by his grace through the work of the cross. And by his grace, you, filthy rags and all, are transformed into a new creation. But apart from Christ, the best of our good works is 
just that, filthy rags. When we think in these terms, it's obvious that these, our good works could not contribute to our justification. In Christ, you are called to do good works, and any true branch will produce fruit, but that fruit is a result of salvation that you have in Christ, not a cause of it. So that's the first point, that circumcision is not something that can be added to Christ. Now turning our attention to verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, I testify to, again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So the second point is that circumcision binds to the law and therefore the condemnation of the law. By accepting circumcision as a requirement, they are no longer justified by the grace of Christ, but they're attempting to be justified by the law of Moses. This is because by accepting one requirement of the law, they are bound to keep, uh, then that, that there is one requirement of the law that they're bound to keep, then there's no reason they wouldn't be bound to keep the whole law. And the Paul is clear in other places, the Mosaic law is still a good thing. Uh, Galatians 3.21, Romans 7, but it must be applied rightly. The law is not meant as a means of justification before God. For those that are under the law, it was meant to point to point them to the need for Messiah, those that were living in the the time of Moses and before Christ. But by accepting circumcision, these the Galatians are rejecting the free salvation that Christ bought and instead leaning on their own work. And they're leaning on this physical symbol rather than Christ's work. Thus, by rejecting Christ, uh, they're back under the law. And for those who, having received Christ initially, and then they're accepting circumcision, they're, they're cutting themselves off from the grace of Christ. The, by accepting this, the grace of Christ will be of no benefit to them. Now, to be relying on the law for justification is to be under the unyielding condemnation of the law. The law condemns all who are not perfect, and all fallen men fall short of that standard. The law cannot both condemn us and be part of our justification. The law is pointing out the problem of our sinfulness. It's not the solution to our sinfulness. So the second point that Paul brings up here is that circumcision binds to the law and therefore it binds those that accept it to condemnation. The third point here as we turn our focus to verse 5 
there, Paul writes, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This, so the, the third point is that in Christ, we have the hope of righteousness. And this hope is a certain expectation of righteousness. The hope is not that uh, my team will win the World Cup, which, if that's America, uh, from the time I wrote this until now, that hope has been proven false. Uh, so, this sort of hope is certain. Christ is the foundation of our righteousness. He will bring that righteousness to completion in his body through the work of sanctification until the day of glorification. In Christ, our hope of righteousness is not in ourselves, but rather in Christ. So our righteousness is through Christ, not any good action or deed, no matter how good it is. In salvation, we receive not only atonement for sin, for our sin, which effectively blots out our sin and frees us from the condemnation that we deserve, but we also receive Christ's positive righteousness. In monetary terms, everyone is under a massive debt. Everyone without Christ, that is. So big we can never repay. And in salvation, not only is our debt of sin canceled, but also Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. So the balance of our account is not zero, but rather unfathomably large. And in Christ, we are being sanctified so that day by day, the Lord continues to make us more like him, more righteous. So that's the third point. In Christ, we have the hope of righteousness. Now turning our attention to verse 6, and this is really sort of the second point of, uh, of the third point. So verse 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Fourth point is, Therefore circumcision is of no salvific value, or really any external sign of righteousness is of no salvific value. So in Christ, neither being, uh, being circumcised is neither a positive or negative thing. It's of no consequence. External things such as circumcision are not important, but faith is. Abraham, to whom the Lord gave the sign of circumcision, was saved by faith, not circumcision. In Christ, the distinction between Jew and Greek is of no salvific consequence. Circumcision was given to Abraham and the Jews as the sign of the covenant. But in Christ, we are under the new covenant where both Jew and Gentile are called into the body of Christ. So what is important for our salvation is faith in Christ as 
Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. So circumcision is of no salvific value. That's the fourth point of that section. So to summarize verses 2 through 6, Paul is really in a disagreement with the, the teaching there at Galatia as to how men are saved. The circumcision party says that men are saved by their works, by doing external things in accordance with the law, but Paul points out that they cannot accept cir- circumcision uh, as having merit for salvation without placing themselves under the condemnation of the full law, of the whole law. And if they are accepting circumcision, then they're nullifying Christ's salvific work, but truly Christ is our righteousness in Christ. Our righteousness is not in some work we do or some external mark of righteousness. Christ has bought atonement for us on the cross, and when the Lord saves you, Christ's positive righteousness is imputed to your account. Those who accept circumcision are then rejecting Christ's work and separating themselves from that grace. Those are the effects of the teaching of circumcision. If, you, if the Galatians continue to accept it, that's the, the problems or the realities that they're going to face. So then, as we look at the second section, verses 7 through 12, here Paul is dealing with the effects of false teachers and false teaching in general. Now, of course, he's writing in the context of this particular issue, but I think this has a much more general application than the issue of circumcision. Of course, all of it applies much more generally than this issue of circumcision, but uh, verses 7 through 12 are more speaking of false teaching in general. So in verses 7 and 8, uh, Paul writes, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So here uh, in verse 7 where Paul writes who, this could also be translated as what, though pretty much all English translations translate it as who. And the image here is that of a runner who's running a race and he's being slowed down by some sort of hindrance, a person blocking the way or an injury or or something that is uh, preventing him from running the race well. And the image of a race or competition is a common one for Paul. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, chapter 24, or 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Uh, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And in that manner, the Galatians had been running, but they were being hindered 
by something, by, in this case, the false teachers who had come and spread their teaching. And it seems that Paul wants the Galatians to remember, hey, things were going pretty well until uh, the Judaizers and, and circumcision party showed up, and then we ran into these issues. In this case, the hindrance was the teaching of circumcision that was leading them away from Christ, who had called them. So verse 8, the believers at Galatia had been called by Christ, by God, and he had called them out of darkness and into light. And the message of circumcision is not from the Lord, not from the one who had called them, but rather from the false shepherds who were leading them astray and hindering them from serving the Lord. So circumcision, or really any false teaching, is a hindrance which is not from the Lord. Then second point here uh, is that, turning our attention to verse 9 and verse 10, the second point is false teaching spreads and corrupts over time. So verse 9, Paul writes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So leaven is generally in scripture an image of impurity. We see that in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul mentions it as an image of impurity. Christ also speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees, though it's not always a negative connotation. Christ also compares the kingdom of God to leaven. But the analogy here is that uh, with leaven or yeast, a little goes a long way, especially over time. If I like to make bread, and if you and I were working on making some bread and we had some dough, it would be nonsense for me to say, hey, this dough is mostly unleavened. It's either, it either has leaven or yeast in it, or it doesn't. And over time, even a small bit of leaven will work through and ferment the whole batch of dough, causing the bread to rise. In the Old Testament, unleavened bread was used in the offerings for the temple uh, and in the Passover meal and for other ceremonial occasions. So, Unleavened bread was ceremonially clean, while unleavened bread was not. So in the analogy that Paul is using here, the leaven is false teaching. And in this case particularly, circumcision. The lump is the body or the church. And the church is to be pure and clean, free of the leaven of the corruption of false teaching. To allow false teaching to continue in the church will be to allow it to continue its work. You can't have false teaching in one part or one area and expect the whole thing to be fine. That teaching is going to have an effect and over time it will do more damage. Because of this, the Galatians cannot simply ignore this issue as something that's small or, or just a isolated thing, because they, they can't let those who promote circumcision continue in their midst. 
and verse 9, or verse 10 rather, uh, Paul says, I have confidence you will take no other view. While the danger from false teaching is very real, as we've seen, Paul is confident that the Galatian believers will understand what Paul is saying and correct this error. But for those that are leading them astray, they will bear a penalty for their false teaching. One way or another, these false teachers will have a penalty, either from the Lord's discipline, uh, from the church, uh, or perhaps even eternal condemnation if they don't repent. So that's the second point, is that false teaching corrupts over time, just like leaven, leavening a dough. And the third point, as we turn our attention to verse 11, is that the offense of the gospel is what causes persecution. So verse 11, Paul writes, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The free, ga the free grace of the gospel is the cause for persecution. Salvation by Christ alone is a stumbling block for the world. As Paul wrote back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, there he says, For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So to unregenerate men, the gospel seems like nonsense. If salvation could be done by something that we can do by effort, then really it would be like basically every other religion in the world. But because the gospel is an invitation to all to who will come to come to Christ without respect for external deeds of righteousness, it causes offense to all other religions. And because the churches include both Gentiles and Jews, um, the Jews were offended by this and the fact that the Gentiles were coming into the church without being circumcised. Thus, they persecuted uh, Paul and the other believers. Another matter is that uh, in the Roman Empire at this time, Judaism was a legal religion. And throughout the first century, Christianity was not. Uh, but for much of this time, Christianity was seen as a Jewish sect. You see that if you go through Acts. Uh, and as long as they were seen as such, as, lo as long as they were seen as Jews, then they would not be persecuted by the Romans. But as the Christians made that distinction clear, they faced persecution. And so the circumcision party seems to have been made up of Jews who claimed to have accepted Christ, but they really had not. They were still holding on to the Mosaic law. And if Paul were to have gone soft on this issue, that would have pacified them. And 
they would have accepted the Christians as basically Jews, and thus the church would have been seen as a Jewish movement, and therefore the Romans would not have persecuted the church. Thus the pressure of persecution may have really been one of the practical reasons that the Galatians accepted circumcision, or at least were tempted by the teaching of circumcision. Because if they held to Christ alone for salvation, then they would face persecution from first the Jews, and then eventually, uh, once the Romans figured out that they weren't, that the Christians were not Jews, they would have faced persecution from the Romans as well. So because the offense, because of the offense of the gospel, that was what caused persecution. And therefore, false teaching was being promoted to avoid persecution. The temptation then is to compromise for the sake of avoiding persecution. So the overall point here is that the offense of the gospel is what causes persecution, and therefore there's the temptation to compromise on the gospel. Then, turning our attention last to verse 12, Paul writes, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So here in verse 12, uh, Paul says that those that are leading the Galatians into this era, that they might as well cut it all off. It would be just as helpful. Now, this is a strong statement by Paul here, and uh, as a kind of an aside, um, Paul wasn't very nice here or throughout Galatians. And I can imagine that someone, you know, if, if uh, you or someone else were to speak like this, uh, to a non-believer, the non-believer w- might come back with something like, does that really reflect the love of Christ? Um, and of course this requires wisdom, but when we're defending the truth, when we're speaking the truth, we're not necessarily bound to some vague standard of what uh, the opponents of the cross will be offended by. We are to speak the truth and uh, if it's called for, uh, speaking the truth plainly and without sugar may be the best way to do that. But returning to verse 12, some historical context here is important. There was in that area a cult of a pagan god, um, and in this cult, the priests and the dedicated male worshipers of this god were self-made eunuchs. So it seems that Paul, with some uh, exasperated sarcasm, says, hey, uh, why don't you just go join this pagan cult, Uh, you who uh, are promoting circumcision, you who are uh, into this. Um, The circumcision party, of course, would have taken extreme offense at this because they would have seen themselves as Abraham's children. They were continuing the sign of circumcision, uh, which had been given to Abraham. But as Paul points out, they're no better 
than this pagan cult because by accepting circumcision, they're being separated from Christ. And therefore, they end up in the same spiritual position as pagans. And there may also be some aspect of a double meaning here. Uh, other translations, including KJV and uh, New King James, instead of emasculate, they say cut themselves off, meaning that they ought to separate themselves from the church body. Um, and that would certainly be better for the Galatian church. Um, if those who were uh, spreading this teaching would separate themselves from her. And whether that's the meaning that Paul has in mind or the more clear uh, meaning uh, of go join the pagan cult sort of thing, uh, either way, the distinction between the false teachers uh, and the church would be easy to see. And that's the important thing. That's the point here is that Paul is uh, saying the false teachers should be separated from the church. Um, Paul wants them to be separate from the church, and uh, so that's the fourth point in this section. So to uh, conclude, in verses 2 through 6, Paul is laying out the ramifications of accepting circumcision. Circumcision is not something which can be added to Christ. Thus, to accept circumcision is to reject the grace of Christ. Uh, circumcision also binds to the law. To uh, Those who accept circumcision are bound to all of the law. And uh, therefore, the condemnation that the law brings. For those who are in Christ, he is the hope, the foundation of our righteousness, not any works that we do, uh, whether that's keeping the law or circumcision or any other good works you might fill in there. Uh, in the second section, verses 7 through 12, we see that circumcision or really any false teaching is a hindrance, which is not from the Lord. And false teaching is a problem that works throughout the whole uh, it's not something which can be confined to one area. And the offense of the gospel is the cause for persecution because, uh, and because of that, there is the temptation to compromise on the gospel. And then fourth, the false teachers should be separated from the church. So let's pray, and then we'll break up into discussion groups. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word. Um, and Lord, I just thank you for the wonderful salvation that we have in Christ. I pray that we would not put our hope in anything else, but rather that we would trust fully in Christ's righteousness and not our own. Lord, I pray that as we, um, as a church body, uh, pray that we would uh, strive for the unity of that we have in Christ and that we would um, that we would guard the purity of the church that we would not allow uh, sin or false teaching uh, in ourselves um, or in the body um, but rather that we would um,
seek to be pure before you. We thank you once again for um, all the blessings you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.